is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. For the teen from California, the jarring Alaskan temperatures of late January were unbearable. Luckily, he had three guides there to help him stay warm and to show him the hunting traditions of their ancestors. The day after they began their adventure, the dark figure of a young man was spotted by hunters in a helicopter. Something had happened to his chaperones, and no one, not even the boy, knew what had occurred. His story left Alaskan authorities wondering who killed Oscar Henry, Freddie Jackson, and Clarence Arnold. I'd like to start with a disclaimer to say that the documents used for the research of this case, including newspapers, a book, case reports, frequently use the term Eskimo in reference to the tribes living in the territories being discussed. Therefore, I can't be certain if the people belong to the Inuit or Yupik tribes, those who used to be grouped into the term. As I won't be using that word, I'll be making the assumption they belong to the Inuit tribe and will be using that to replace that term. On Saturday, January 23, 1970, two men were flying over the Alaska tundra near the Kobuk sand dunes when they spotted something dark against the snow. To give you an idea of just how isolated the location was, it would take an hour and a half to fly north from Anchorage to the Ralph Ween Memorial Airport. From there, you'd have to take a boat ride and then a drive, if there were even roads, to the east and you would finally be there. The dunes and surrounding area offer hikes and the rare enjoyment of summer warmth for a small part of the year. The colder seasons are a perfect time to hunt caribou and wolves. Which was what had brought Harold Lai, the pilot of the small, lightweight super cab helicopter, and Dr. Ray Land to the skies of the area. They were hoping to do some aerial wolf hunting. Excited to see the potential target, Harold shouted out, Get ready! and pushed open part of the door. Holding his shotgun out the opening, Dr. Ray took aim. Before he could pull the trigger, the wolf stood up and waved his arms frantically. That's when they realized the figure was a man. Well, legally he was a man, but barely. At just 19 years old, Norman Johnson, who went by Butch, was happy to see the chopper as he desperately needed help. Taking a moment to bring the aircraft down, the men landed and approached him. They were shocked to see he was covered in blood. Frantic and scared, the teenager rambled a story of why he was wandering the vast, cold Alaskan wilderness. In fear for his life, he had run through the night and continued into the day until he was spotted. The blood wasn't his, rather his hunting companions, who, from what he could vaguely remember, had been attacked. The boy made an escape, but was certain that a killer was on his trail. The bird was barely large enough to hold the three men, but they crammed inside and got into the air as fast as they could. As the whirling hum of the propellers went on, Harold ran Butch's story through his mind over and over, and it just didn't seem right. If he had escaped, why was he covered in blood? Harold couldn't ask Butch any of this, as he was in a deep sleep as soon as they were airborne. Seeing the red flags surrounding Butch, Harold grabbed a hatchet and kept it close. An emergency radio call was then made to the Public Health Service in Kiana. Police were also informed that three men had been killed while hunting. 
Once Butch was dropped off to be examined, Harold returned to the air, hoping to find the hunting camp and to provide help if it was needed. By the time he found their tent, the sun was beginning to set. Even though he saw the body of a man laying outside of the tent, it was clear there was no urgent medical services needed. Harold returned to Kiana. Back in town, AST officer Boatwright spoke to the young man. It was clear he was in shock from whatever had happened. Due to the elements, he was shivering cold. Questioned, he couldn't remember much of what had transpired at the tent. The only real information he could offer was his name. Details were still unknown to police, but stories were starting to spread, and it didn't take long for the village to hear of the three local indigenous men who had been murdered while hunting, and the only one to make it out alive was a white kid from California. This caused such a furious response, officials removed white teachers from the local school out of concern for their safety. In an effort to quell the community's response, second-year Fairbanks traffic officer Lorenz Schruck, or Lori, was brought to Kiana, his hometown. He was the first part Inuit state trooper, but many would follow. After hiring him, it was quickly realized that officials who were from the area or had a similar background had more success when dealing with the indigenous people who lived in the remote villages. Lori and others started putting together a search party. They decided to start by being dropped off where Butch had been found and they would follow his tracks back to the tent, looking for relevant evidence or clues along the way. Once they arrived at the tent, they would process it as a crime scene before packing up the men and their belongings and bringing them back to town. Those men were Oscar Henry, Freddie Jackson, and Clarence Arnold. Oscar Henry was 64 years old in 1970. He was an indigenous man from Kiana, his father Jack and mother Ruth having been born in the Alaska Territory in the 1870s and 80s, respectively. He came from a large family, having eight brothers and two sisters, which may have inspired his own parenting choices, having 12 children of his own with his wife, Bessie. Fun fact, his father, Jack, lived to be 108 years old. Wow. Yeah, passing away in 1980. No, thank you. (laughs) That's too much. (laughs) Frederick Jackson, who went by Freddie, was born in Kiat to the Inupiat people and territory. Their land covered the northern third of what would eventually become the state of Alaska. Unlike Oscar, he had a reasonable three siblings. He and his wife, Paulina Foxglove, were wed in July of 1954, and they never had any children. Clarence Arnold was a trapper's son and had dropped out of school in the first grade. He married his wife, Susie, in 1950 when he was 20 years old. They, too, had no children. And who was this young man they had been tasked with babysitting on a hunting adventure? Norman Leroy Johnson, a.k.a. Butch, was born June 2, 1949. His parents, Mary and Alvin Johnson, raised him and his two brothers in Palm Springs, California, or at least in that general area. His father's contracting work had the family moving throughout the state. After attending a Catholic elementary school, Butch would go on to be a football star at Palm Springs High. In 1969, when he was 19, his dad got an offer for a carpentry job with the Alaska State Housing Authority that would have him based in Anchorage, but had him going to remote villages for the actual work. Though Butch was an adult, he decided to join his parents on their adventure in the Arctic. In January 1970, Butch was attending Anchorage Community College as his father worked over 500 miles away in Kiana, a small village with about 300 indigenous residents. The breathtaking scenery and isolation had Al thinking maybe his son could benefit from it and maybe he would even enjoy an adventure deeper into the state's interior. 
So with the help of his new and local friend, Freddie Jackson, Al arranged for his son Butch to join Freddie and whomever he could talk into accompanying him on a caribou hunting trip as a way to wrap up his winter semester break. The plan would take Freddie, one of the only local men to be paid in actual cash and not sweat equity by Al, and Butch, 70 miles from Kiana, to the Kobuk River. Freddie was able to talk Oscar and Clarence into joining. It was a win-win for them, as they would not only get the meat from the hunt, but it was helping Freddie earn points with his boss. On the 23rd, Oscar and Clarence had already made their way to where the group would be camping, setting up their tent and igniting a fire. Later, Freddie started up his suspensionless snowcat, and Butch hopped on the towed sled, and they started the drive. They arrived at the camp that evening. Butch was covered in the snow that had been projected onto him from the ride. They enjoyed their dinner with the other men before going to bed. Being that it was the third week of January and they were camping on the border of the Arctic Circle, the weather was unbearable. There wasn't any wind, but there was ice fog and temperatures were in the negative 50s. Oh my God, I can't even negative fathom that. 50s. Oof. Which had the local men unfazed. The boy from California, however, was not prepared. To keep him from freezing to death, the men provided Butch with boots, a parka, and everything else they knew he would need to survive the brutal weather. The sun limited their hunting hours to between 11.30 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. The morning of the 24th, they packed up their rifles and snow machines and hit the road, or snow. Once again, Butch was stuck in the degrading bitch seat, his face full of snow as he was bouncing along the frozen land on the sled, holding on for dear life. Then, the guy spotted a herd of caribou. Ready to shoot something, Butch reached down, trying to get his rifle ready. Taking a sharp turn to catch up to them, Freddy accidentally threw Butch from the sled. After rolling across the snow, Butch came to a stop and watched the men continue on towards the herd. Freddy felt he may have been stuck taking Butch out, but he wasn't going to be babysitting him, and Butch watched on as the men continued the hunt and left him behind. Following the snowmobile tracks, he started walking. It took some time for him to catch up to the men, and when he did, they had already shot and killed the caribou. Butch was horrified to see they were cleaning the female, and as they took it apart, he saw the unborn calf fall out of her body. Mm. He was taken aback and nauseated by what he felt was Freddie's coldness towards the situation. But this was what Freddie and his family and ancestors had done for millennia to stay warm and fed. The butchering of the animal was not what Butch was accustomed to, even if it was his name. Hopping back on the sled, Butch was dragged back to camp, but Clarence was forced to walk as his snowmobile wouldn't start. Once they arrived back, there was still plenty of work to be done. Wood needed to be chopped for the fire. The caribou, which would be their dinner, needed to be prepared. Water was going to be hauled for drinking, and the snowmobiles needed to be repaired, none of which the exhausted Butch was interested in doing. Around 6 p.m., a neighbor and indigenous man, 32-year-old Clarence Wood, showed up at the campsite. He was invited to stay for coffee and soup, which he did. While he hung out with the men, he noticed that not only was Butch not helping them with any of the chores, but he was just curled up on his bed, only speaking if someone spoke to him. This was due to the men speaking Alouette. Butch was feeling sensitive and annoyed that he couldn't understand what they were saying, and he was concerned they were talking about him. The men assured him they weren't, but when he saw their body language as they laughed hysterically while reenacting his fall from the sled early in the day for their guest, he was embarrassed and upset. The men laughed. Butch seethed. It was 7 p.m. when Clarence left to go back to his own tent. 
It wasn't long after Clarence Wood left that Freddie, Oscar, and Clarence decided it was time to go to bed, so they started making preparations to do so. Butch remained on his cot. The next thing Butch knew, he was being picked up by a helicopter about 25 miles from the camp. In the days following his rescue, Butch was interviewed by Trooper Boatwright. Starting to get his memory back, Butch was able to provide a description of the killer, and he gave an account of what had taken place telling officers a mysterious man had shown up at the tent and opened fire on the men. Butch said the attacker was, quote, about five foot nine, kind of fat, wearing a dark blue, comfy, hip-length parka with a light-colored wolf ruff. He had brown, downfilled army-type trousers with zippers in the legs, dark, store-bought snow boots with rubber soles and cloth tops, and wearing a black earband with the word Alaska written across it. He was driving a yellow snow machine, pulling a cargo-type sled that was filled. There was a canvas across the sled, and I don't know what was in it. I was in my sleeping bag in the back of the tent, and he and the other Eskimos were talking in the front of the tent. I guess they started arguing as they were raising their voices. This guy that was visiting got up and left the tent, and we turned out the lamps. He started his machine, and then it died. Shortly after it stopped, there was a bunch of shots, and one of the men with me hollered, No, no! and I guess he took one of the first shots as he fell partway across me. I slipped out of my sleeping bag and out of the back of the tent and ran a short distance and hid behind a tree. The guy kept firing and firing, both small and large caliber, and then it was all quiet. I saw the fellow walk up to the tent, do something inside, and then come out again. He looked around for a while, then got on the machine and left, heading towards Kiana. I stayed put until the sound of his machine became faint, and then I went to the back of the tent, Everyone was dead. I didn't want to stick around because I was afraid the guy might come after me. You know, it's so detailed, this, what he's, what he's saying, mm -hmm. but I just don't believe him. Mm -hmm. Let's see what happens. The fear was his reason for sneaking out of the tent and trying to start either of the remaining snowmobiles. The weather made a simple task like that one to be done by an expert, which Butch was not. Unable to get a ride, he started walking. Trooper Boatwright realized the description sounded a lot like Clarence Wood, the visitor. But Butch assured him it had not been Clarence. Without further to go on, Butch was released and advised to leave the area because he was a suspect. Boatwright didn't want his suspect getting killed by vigilantes before he could piece together what happened. One such vigilante, Trooper Lori's second cousin and son of Oscar, Paul, had his weapons taken away to keep him from making a deadly mistake. That's frightening. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case. So yeah. I'm going to go hey, ahead buddy. and hold these. Hey, cousin, I'm going to take your guns. Please. But it is kind of like suspect. the Wild West out there, right? Well, like, yeah. And if you're a tiny town of 300 people and that something like that happens and it's fishy right away. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're going to, especially him, it was his own father. You know, you're going to be pretty upset. The townspeople felt confident their police force, especially the indigenous officers, would find out who had killed their men. With Paul unarmed, everything calmed down and the investigation could proceed. Trooper Boatwright, Kiana's mayor, Police Chief Stevens, and an assistant pilot then flew up to the campsite. The officers approached it first, making sure it was cleared before bringing the others over, should the killer still be in the tent. Once they were certain it was safe, the mayor and the others were brought over. Documenting the scene, they found Freddy first. He had been shot while in the tent and had crawled outside. To help with the pain, he grabbed a branch and had bitten down on it. The killer then shot him one or two more times. 
Because his frozen blood had seeped down to the earth, he hadn't died from the gunshot hitting an organ. He had bled to death. Clarence and Oscar's bodies remained inside. Clarence had been shot several times. Oscar may have leapt out of bed when the first shots were fired as he was grazed by a bullet while pulling his pants up. Falling to the ground, he was unable to get away before the gunman approached him and beat him in the head with the butt of the gun. A 243 caliber bolt was recovered near Oscar's head, the same caliber as the hunter's guns. Boatwright started to look for and document evidence. Looking for the killer's tracks, Boatwright was surprised to only find tracks from Oscar and Freddie and Clarence Woods' snow machines. After packing up all evidence and mapping out the crime scene, the area was cleared and the bodies were sent to Anchorage to get autopsies. Was he surprised that's all he found? Well, <laughs> maybe um, concerned would be the word. Alarmed. <laughs> Starting to really set in now. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Byerney completed the autopsies on the men. Freddie had four wounds, one on the upper left arm, one in the left buttocks, in the left forearm, and a large wound in the upper right arm. He had, in fact, bled to death. Clarence had wounds in his upper right arm, a large wound in the side below the ribs, a wound in the back between the shoulder blades, a scalp laceration, one in the left wrist, and one that occurred later than the others, a wound in the right hip. He died from the gunshots. Oscar had three wounds, one in the left leg, one in the right leg. Killing him instantly was the blunt force trauma to the back of the neck at the base of the skull. For two days, a 13-person search party was sent out at the request of the mayor. They combed the area surrounding the campsite, up the river, and where Butch had been found. They were searching for anything that could lead to the killer, best-case scenario being that they would find the snowmobile tracks and be led right to him. All they found was Freddy's 243 gauge rifle. It had been his hunting gun that was then used to bludgeon Oscar to death. Blood remained on the butt of the weapon. While that was going on, Clarence Wood heard about what happened and immediately went to the police as they would obviously want to speak with him. He happily answered all questions and even provided a list of names. They were people he had seen that night, and he knew they would verify his alibi, which they did, and he was cleared. It was a day after Butch was interviewed by Boatwright, and he was now being interviewed by Trooper Investigator Dean Bilvins. Butch had a second story for his second interview. This time, when they got back from the hunt, their camp had been rummaged through. They were missing a sleeping bag, and some of their other belongings were strewn about. They cleaned up, and then Clarence came by and left. But then another man came by. He, too, entered the tent and had a cup of coffee, but the group soon started to argue. The man went to leave and revved up his snowmobile. They crawled back into bed. Wait, who is saying that this this happened? This is Butch's second account. Oh boy, his here second, we go. Yeah, here second we go, officer. Butch. Second <laughs> officer, second interview, second story. Oh boy. So instead of someone coming by while they were all asleep, this man they came. They all hung out. Yeah, this man came after Clarence left. Apparently, it's a very popular area. And he came in and he too. It's a very popular area yeah. in the middle Lots of Lots of people just stopping by. You got coffee? You got some <laughs> caribou soup for me? So with the second man, the group quickly began to argue. The man then went to leave and he tried to rev up his snowmobile and they went and crawled back into bed. But as quickly as the machine had started, it was turned off and the man was back. Mm -hmm. He then opened fire. Butch snuck out of the back of the tent, escaping the bullets and cries of his companions. Scared for his life, he hid behind some trees, staying there until he saw the man leave. Going back inside, he found everyone dead. 
He grabbed some clothes, tried to start a snowmobile before heading out on foot. So we're supposed to believe that this guy who can't even sit on a snowmobile and not fall off. Right. Suddenly escapes this massive fight. Yeah, he's a kid so. from California, and that that was part of what they were saying was the weather, even though, because I keep picturing it like March of the Penguins or something, you know, like blizzard conditions, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. There wasn't any wind. It was just so brutally cold that it really took right. someone from there to know how to even turn the thing on because it was so difficult for that engine to roll over. Oh, I cold. imagine. I imagine. Yeah, so... It's starting to sound even more questionable. Yeah, he's digging himself a hole. I don't think you know where this story's going. Uh Uh-oh. No, (laughs) it's okay. You'll just be really pissed later. Oh, goody. Another day passed and another interview was requested. This time, the questions weren't just to find out what happened that night so investigators could solve the mystery. They had evidence and were wanting to put pressure on Butch to get real answers. Like how it was clear the bullets had been shot into the tent from the outside. With just that little bit of pressure, Norman Butch Johnson folded. Oh, boy. He admitted to his involvement. But as we know all too well, a confession does not automatically equal justice. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Here's what Butch claimed happened that cold, cold night. Story number three. Story number three. Soon after getting into bed, he walked outside to go to the bathroom. While there, he went to where the guns were being stored and grabbed his own 30-30 rifle. He turned to face the tent, and he opened fire. At that time, all the men were struck. Freddie made a run for the front exit, but when he got outside, Butch shot him again. He then turned and started walking on the trail, but then he heard one of the snowmobiles screeching in an attempt to turn over and start. He knew he had to go back and finish what he started. Getting back to the camp, he shot Freddy once more, killing him. 
In all, Freddie was shot four times. Butch then went into the tent where he found Freddie's gun. He opened fire on Clarence and Oscar. Clarence was shot six times, Oscar three. Running out of bullets, Butch then beat Oscar's head, knocking the later recovered bolt out of the gun. He put on more layers of clothing, tried to start a snowmobile, and took off running when he couldn't. Like, what is his motive that they made fun of him in another language? See, you're understanding. You, <laughs> you get it. I d- a year later, in January of 1971, Butch was headed to trial. He had pled not guilty by reason of insanity. <sighs> I knew you'd love this. The state had plenty of evidence to prove Butch was the responsible party. Not only had he confessed, but there was physical evidence, too. The bullets going into the tent from outside. All of the men were inside the tent when the shooting began, finding the gun that had been used on the trail that he had taken. It was going to take a lot to prove that he didn't know what he was doing. The defense's motives surrounded the disrespect Butch had experienced from the start of the trip that he hadn't wanted to take in the first place. He had to ride on a sled. He was being blasted with snow the whole time. He was surrounded by strange men speaking in a strange language. It was negative 50 degrees outside, and they were mocking him after having abandoned him on the excursion. He had witnessed the horror of hunting and the killing of an unborn calf. He hated everything about that day, and it had sent him over the edge. I mean, no. (laughs) (laughs) To prove Butch was clinically insane at the time of the murders, Dr. Ray Langdon examined him and testified at trial that he felt Butch was not in control of his actions at that time. During the interview and testing portion of his exam, Butch was totally coherent and rational. But when the doctor compiled the test results and Butch's medical history, he felt it showed Butch may have latent schizophrenic symptoms, which basically means he might have schizophrenia but he doesn't have any symptoms or they haven't yet developed. That sounds convenient. The doctor would go on to say that what Butch was experiencing in his time with the men was like an extended panic attack. The panic came from the circumstances. This 19-year-old was away from home, in the wilderness with three indigenous men in painfully cold weather. He was truly lost, and the fear sent him into a panic, which sent him into a psychosis. He said, quote, I feel he probably knew the nature and quality of actions, but that he did not believe it was criminal or wrongful at the time. I I, I just have a real hard time. It buying takes this. a lot. Mm-hmm. Like if you allow this argument. Look at all the other scenarios you're going to have to start allowing. Exactly. It. A second doctor also testified in support of Butch. Dr. Barbara Uri, a psychiatrist, felt Butch was a fetishist, saying, quote, That the ego of the fetishist is what is involved in this killing. Is he identified with the baby and the mother caribou? The loss compromised his own body image, which was already fairly well compromised. That is, he was insecure as to who he was, having lost contact with his culture, with his geography. He was pretty much displaced. Then these men would become the enemy, you see, and he could be killed by them just like this caribou was and this baby caribou. Really, it's the baby that never had a chance because this is Butch in a certain sense. This is sounding a lot like reverse racism, which isn't a thing. (laughs) I'm just going to keep going because I'm loving your guys' response to this. Really, it's the baby that never had a chance because this is Butch in a certain sense, who really never had a chance. He did not get up to urinate. 
he did have an erection, not a sexual sort of thing, but in a sense of asserting his identity, preserving his survival, and that it was totally incongruous to even consider the possibility of masturbating. But then there's one other point that is when a fetishist cannot deny his identification with his mother, he generally does break down. You see, so this is what I think did happen and that I do believe he did see the tent and that his survival was threatened and that he doesn't know what he was doing and that he shot in self-defense. Oh, my God. Where did this boner come from? Uh, he, I missed this. Well, that somehow. was the introduction. <laughs> his ears perked up when he that was boner. That was the introduction of the erection. Uh, oh, okay. Basically... From what I could tell is in speaking with the psychiatrist. He had blue balls. He admitted to having an erection at that time when he got up. But it was too cold to masturbate. And it it wasn't sexual. It was a a pee boner. Is that a thing? Yeah. What I took from it is that he was feeling so emasculated by their that he language got a rock hard boner. that he got a boner to be like, look at me, I'm I'm big and strong. Who, who Jesus said that? The, a psychiatrist. <laughs> so a female psychiatrist. That he's a fetishist and because his identity was lost. And his he like felt masculine identity or his like white ev- identity? Well, Everything. Everything. All of it. I am flabbergasted. Uh-huh. I'm scared of what happens And next. when you say shot in self-defense and it's against three men who are sleeping. And cannot see you due how to the tent they are in. How can you say that word? How could you possibly say that? They because are he in interpreted it uh-huh. as self-defense. Oh uh-huh. my God, gag me with a spoon. <laughs> why did he, why did he narc himself out on the boner? Why did he tell anybody that? <laughs> he he probably in... thought it would help sound insane. He might possibly be insane, but I, I, I think he knew what he was doing, and isn't that what it boils down to? I just found it interesting that no one at, at his college had said anything. No one on his football team Yeah, there team should be some anything. sort of record. His parents, who he was still living with up in Alaska, hadn't said anything. Because... He chose to go up there. Anyone who commits their first murder could technically argue, like, yeah. oh, it's my latent schizophrenia uh-huh. that I haven't experienced yet. Yeah. It's baffling. When asked if Butch knew wrong from right when he was killing the men, that same doctor said, for the moment, he didn't realize what he was doing. He knows that you're not supposed to shoot people. But for the moment, this took a second place because he had to save himself from a danger, which suddenly became very real. This danger was inside, but he thought it was outside. Well, he knew it was wrong as soon as he had done it, but not at the time he was doing it. I'm sorry. What is she getting out of this? Are they boning on the side? Like, (sighs) I don't know what, but uh, I don't know. Or maybe she's a fetishist expert. And so she's happy to take the opportunity anytime to try to like paint the picture. But this is not a good example of that. Mm -mm, Not at all. And to say like, oh, just for that split second. Just for the second that he was doing it, he didn't know. But right before and right after, yeah, he knew. Do you think you could get an erection in negative 50 temperatures? Oh, no. 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 It's gone. Right? You look at it, it's gone. Right? That's it's what I, that was there. one of but the first things I thought. what was it in his sleeping bag? It might have been very toasty warm. Maybe, but even yeah, that, you know. your hands wander? I Oof. don't know. It just seems... I'm I'm saying it'd be damn near impossible to get to do that there. Yeah. Anything, anything. You don't want to kiss anybody. Well, he's 19. Oh, I would. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, actually, you know what? It could have just happened. I didn't. didn't, That would change things a bit. I think. I remember that. Wish. I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the days. 
Dr. John Rollins testified on behalf of the state. In his opinion, after examining Butch, he showed no signs of mental illness or any disorder which would keep him from knowing he was murdering people and what he did was wrong. He said that because Butch could recall the details of what he did, it showed that he was coherent and mentally present. A second doctor, Walter Rappaport, hadn't examined Butch, hence the defense's objection to his testifying, but the court allowed his testimony anyway. Reading the testimony of the defense's doctors, Dr. Rappaport felt that there was no evidence of mental illness. Rather, Butch showed he understood premeditation and forethought. He also felt Butch's recollection of the shooting, his denial, and attempts to hide evidence and lying to officers only proved that he knew the difference between right and wrong. Sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, I think that's a very valid argument. Dr. Rappaport also countered the fetish claim by the defense. While fetishism can be accompanied by mental illness, you do not have to have a mental illness to have a fetish. He stated, This evidence of fetishism in no way would alter my opinion as to his mental capacity relative to issues which I have given an opinion. When a defendant makes an insanity plea, it then becomes their burden to prove it. Instead of being innocent until proven guilty, he was believed to be sane unless proven otherwise. The court didn't agree with the defense or their doctors and gave the following statement. Applying the ALI or Alaskan Law for Insanity rule to the testimony primarily of the psychiatrists and by further removing the speculative aspects of their testimony or their subjective presumptions, I find that using the ALI test, the defendant does not meet the test and is therefore responsible for his criminal conduct. His substantial recall of the sequence of events during the shooting, attempts to cover his actions, and withholding details attempting to avoid responsibility also all tend to show a substantial capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct and an attempt to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. I recognize that some testimony exists that defendant may not have been aware of what he was doing, but there is no testimony that any such lapse was, except by speculation and conjecture, due to any substantial mental and disease or defect. I thus find that the defendant has failed to carry the burden by a preponderance of the evidence that his actions were caused by a mental illness. Hear, hear. Finding him sane, the court then needed to decide what charges he would face. The judge then said, There is testimony that defendant is below average mentally and further that his conduct is not entirely normal, although not mentally ill as defined by the test used. Defendant suffers from a fetishistic disorder and there is a question concerning his development towards maturity. Further, defendant probably underwent some stresses due to the cold remoteness of the area where the incident took place, the foreign language used around him, and perhaps even the inability of defendant to keep up with the experienced hunters. I merely review this to assist in determining the ability of the defendant to premeditate and to experience malice aforethought. The stresses, individually, are not sufficient to be seriously considered. Collectively, however, it could, with any provocation, oh, no. such as anger, fear, jealousy, etc., cause some irrational or impassioned behavior. The description of the hunting scene, the testimony of the psychiatrist highlighting feelings of persecution, and the evidence in general fails to show any premeditation. The state has proven beyond a reasonable doubt the unlawful killing by a defendant presumed sane. The facts show that the defendant acted in a deliberate manner while performing the homicidal acts. Such substantiates the element of malice aforethought necessary for a verdict of murder in the second degree, and I so find the defendant. The judge found Butch guilty of three counts of second-degree murder. 
he made the recommendation that he should serve three concurrent life sentences with the understanding he would obtain psychiatric treatment and that the parole board would release him when they were convinced that he was no longer a danger to society and he had received his treatment. Now, I can't really recall another case where it was up to the parole board. Not necessarily that he would be up for parole, but more like, well, I'm giving you life unless... Yeah, I don't know much about that. I know there's usually some sort of minimum, and then once they reach that, then it's up to the parole Yeah, it kind of wasn't worded that way, and I was like, well, normally you hear it like that, but maybe that's what it is. Or maybe it was life or a certain amount of years. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of times life means 20 years Yeah, that was the thing, because they didn't have other years. It wasn't, I find you guilty and you're going to do 20 years or three life sentences. It was, I'm giving you three life sentences unless the parole board says otherwise. Yeah. So because those years weren't put there or the mandatory minimum wasn't put there, Uh Butch, of course, filed an appeal just two years into his sentence. His first complaint was that even though he wasn't found legally insane, he should have at the very least been treated as having diminished capacity. Additionally, the state didn't prove he killed the men with malicious intent. He shouldn't have been charged with second degree murder. Um, I I don't know. It's pretty malicious when you like get a gun. Yeah. And point it at a tent of yeah. sleeping men. I'm sorry, sir. And pull the trigger. And there's literally no reason except you felt like an outsider. You were cold. I mean, you hurt my feelings. In response, the state gave Butch a list of evidence that showed malice. He had to leave the area to retrieve the weapons. Mm -hmm. He had to know of and go to the weapons storage area. The first shots came from his own gun, which he had clearly chosen deliberately. He had to take the gun out of the case to use it. He fired at least 10 shots from two different weapons. Those 10 shots were aimed at the tent, knowing that the men were in there. Freddie was shot when he came out of the tent. Finally, the pattern of the shots showed Butch had changed positions to change where he was aiming. That would have been enough time to think, oh, God, what have I mm-hmm. done? And stop. Any of that. Walking over to the thing. Yeah. It's negative 50. Well, who knows at night? Negative 50. And you're, mm-hmm. I'm going to walk out in this weather. I'm going to get out of my sleeping bag and open that up and open the case and unlock it yep. and get my now, gun. Had he been in the tent and picked up something heavy and bashed someone right. over the head, maybe that I could understand that. A that would have helped his case more. Right. Yeah, exactly. As far as the state was concerned, they weren't going to bring diminished capacity to it. They had the insanity plea in place for that reason, and it wasn't proven. Because they hadn't charged him with first-degree murder, because of the reasons similar to diminished capacity, the court had taken into account he may have been stressed or traumatized, which could have caused a diminished capacity, which, for the court, was why there were no signs of premeditation. This went along with their charges of second-degree murder. Another point Butch appealed was that the state's doctor, Rappaport, had used the testimony to make his decisions. According to Butch and his legal team, that went against the rules of having witnesses in the courtroom. Well, the doctor wasn't in the courtroom, and he later told the appellate court he had only used the other testimony to know what data they were using to come to their conclusions. Another complaint was that three life sentences for killing three men was excessive. That was denied flat But they were concurrent, even, so... Count your blessings, buddy. (laughs) Finally, Butch was upset the defense had the burden of proof to prove insanity. That entire appeal was denied. To save any confusion for future appellates, the Alaska legislature made it clear that anyone claiming a mental disease or defect as a defense then takes the responsibility to prove so beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. 
The 21-year-old had been sent to prison, but because his concurrent life sentences, including getting psychiatric help, he was, some would say, conveniently sent back to California. The reasoning given was that he could receive adequate care there. Some would suggest it was because of his father, a white guy from California who was making good money, and he had him moved. Maybe he was moved because prison in Alaska was too dangerous, especially after being found guilty of killing three local indigenous men. That's more likely to me. This certainly leaves me wondering how often Alaskan men are moved out of state to get the best mental health treatment they can. I don't have those numbers, but I'm going to guess it's pretty low. Probably if very, ever, very low. If it's ever happened. Yeah. Norman Butch Johnson passed away in July 2017, but he didn't die in prison as a life sentence would imply. His obituary said it best when it came to his time in Alaska. At a young age, he went to live with his parents in Anchorage, Alaska. After a short stay, he moved back to California. After a short stay? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Oh, I can't wait to see my obituary. <laughs> All your horrible deeds are just little after she went here for a little bit. All my horrible deeds? What have I done? You got time. <laughs> As his sentence came with the caveat that the parole board could decide when he would be let out, not a sentence and then a parole hearing, Butch tried something most inmates don't. He asked about it. So, after just four years, he asked, can I be let out? Since there hadn't been an eligibility time set, there was nothing wrong with him oh doing that. Oh, my God. Part of his sentence was that he would need to be in custody until deemed safe to himself and society. During those four years, he hadn't had any issues with his behavior or compliance. Serving just 16 months for each man's death, Butch was paroled. That's horrible. He would go on to meet his wife, Laura, and they had two children, Alvin and Candy, nine grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Like his father, Butch moved for work, and in 1987, the family moved to Oklahoma. His obituary didn't mention the men he killed, but it did say, Never a good deed to go undone, Norm took care of his sister-in-law for many years. The nerve. Although he had claimed the events on that hunting trip had been traumatizing, leading to him committing the murders, he apparently overcame those issues and was an avid fisherman and hunter. Now, you know I'm all about people being given second chances and getting treatment for rehabilitation, but before that can happen, justice needs to be served. Being a privileged kid from Palm Springs who gets cold and offended so they kill three unarmed, innocent, sleeping men because they were speaking a different language is not something that should be shrugged off after just a couple of years. He was able to go on, live the life he wanted, perhaps never again concerning himself with the three men whose lives he took. There's no telling how or if he was ever affected by his supposed mental health conditions or if he ever sought treatment. What is known is that Kiana still struggles to care for its residents. In a 2019 article, KTOO News learned that the village, populated by 421 people, only had Annie Reed, then 49, as the lone village safety patrol officer. This was an issue throughout Alaska and its villages. At the time in Kiana, Officer Annie was outnumbered by sex offenders seven to one. Whoa. For a more detailed account of this story, you can read Tom Brennan's book, Alaska's Deadly Dozen, which I found on Thriftbooks. That's really disappointing. Yeah. Well, because he asked about it. It was the sentencing and... Well, and they're overcrowded. They always yeah. have been. And you're so hopeful. It's like, oh, maybe, you know, he's trying this. He hasn't done anything else, so... I, I I get the stress, but then come forward and say, hey, 
I messed up. I kind of lost it out there. I'm only a teenager. About to be 20 or so. And I've never been maybe not out of California. I don't know. Or maybe he didn't travel all that much outside of California. And so to go to something so extreme, I get that that could have an effect on you. But if every time you are around people who speak a different language or it's too cold or you saw you went on a hunting trip and saw an animal get killed. It's just so hard for me to understand. Like maybe it maybe that is the case and that he's safe and would never do anything like that again. But that's I just can't. It doesn't compute. Yeah. And and okay, let's give him the benefit. Yep. He snapped whatever that means or looks like for him. And it happened. You still need to serve your time. Yeah. You still you still were they not found. Have put minimum years there. Yeah. Like, what exactly. The heck? If they had done 20 to life. Then he'd have then to. he would have at least done 15, the 20. Yeah, probably. exactly. Yeah. 10. Yeah. Anything. 16 months. Like, no. Yeah. Th- those are three human beings. Yeah. Yeah. He was he it was like he was in charge the whole time or he got to decide like, oh, I'll just ask the parole board. And maybe. he doesn't sound too dumb to me. Like either someone was using him as a puppet and speaking for him or or they were just hoping that that would take. And I think you're right. You said earlier reverse racism. Exactly. You're not being attacked because you are a guest for people that speak a different language instead of sitting there and admiring it. And wow, what an experience I get to be like so isolated in this remote part of the world that most people will never see. And I can sit here and have a warm cup of soup and a cup of coffee with these men. And I don't know what they're saying, but I'm just going to experience it. And instead he's tantruming on his bed and won't help and won't work and doesn't want to. And it's cold and it's, it's like, you came to Alaska, buddy. Jeez. I wouldn't go on a hunting trip because I would be bothered seeing a dead animal. He went on a hunting trip, you know, <laughs> like that probably would have traumatized me a little bit, too. I, I mean, I do understand that part, but it, it, it does not it does not equal having an outburst no. that is going to take three like, lives. He's like the original worst Karen. <laughs> like the extreme version of I'm offended just because you're speaking a different language than me. Yeah. Yikes. That Ooh. one's rough. And just got to go live his life. So, you know, if if you're related to him, I'd love to hear if he's got grandchildren and great grandchildren out in Oklahoma or, you know, who knows where they are now. If they even know the story about him. They might not. It was just a blip. Oh, yeah. He went up to that four years. That is so easy to erase from your life, especially back then. As you meet someone later and just be like, oh, yeah, I went up. Uh, oh, yeah. Lived in Alaska for a bit with my folks. Why would you ever want to talk about went it? Down to Cal- came back home to California. But, you know, yeah, you wouldn't have to. Had no effect on his life, I'm sure. That's the story of Butch Johnson. Real nice guy. Clarence Wood showed up at the clamp site. Unable to get on the ride, he started walking. Oh, throat. Hello. Yeah, that's a title. Caribou soup? Yeah. yeah, that could be. That he felt Butch was not in control of his actions at the time. What was that? I'm sorry. Yeah, was there talking? No, that was... 
Your game? Did you fart? No, it was my it was my microphone. Oh. Uh, it sounded like arm. a voice. That was ghost. I am ghost on CBS. Well, please don't do that. (laughs) She's on a roll. (laughs) Thank you. Excuse us. We're almost done. (laughs) The first time I've moved. Yeah, and we hated it. I forgot you were here until you made that loud disruptive noise. (laughs) He showed. And then you're like, what was I thinking? Why did I watch that? Yeah, the boner would (laughs) probably. The boner (laughs) would probably. too familiar to you. (laughs) Boner popsicles. All right, enough peener. Boner popsicles. (laughs) Title. Butch tried something most inmates don't. Butch tried something most inmates don't. Duh. Is that your for your side chicks? Yes, I do. I call it on the big tablet. <gasps> oh God, I knew it. Where you also take all your photos and videos. Oh, yeah. His nudie photos. A lot of selfies that are <laughs> low angled, capturing everything. God forbid one of us finds <laughs> one. Ah. Skin flute hour. Ooh. Oh my god. We, we didn't say sex work. Well, it's not sexual. For me. It's just work. He volunteers it. It's not sexual. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>